House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are at the interview part of the show. Um, so uh, today uh, we have a, an award-winning author and uh, a pretty amazing all-around uh, good guy. Uh, Jeffrey Round, uh, thank you for being here. Alan, thanks. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Wow. Now we've got uh, John Copenhaver on the um, line as well. He's kind of assisting me here with the. Uh, we're doing a tag team on Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Al. Hi, Jeff. So now, Jeffrey, um, this is the first time you've been on the show. So let's talk about. Um, Let's talk about you. Um, where did it all start for you, and how did you get into uh, writing? Wow. Uh, you want to go right back to the roots. Okay. Um, <laughs> when I was four, before I learned my alphabet, I thought, <laughs> I am a writer. As, as a kid, I thought, I'm a writer. It's a, it's, it's, there's never been a time when I didn't think I was a writer. So when I grew up to become a writer, it was, it was not really a big surprise for me. Uh, it was for a lot of other people who just thought, oh, this kid's just a dreamer, like, uh, like my parents. But, um, but, you know, I, I turned out okay, and they, they, think it's, they think it's fine that I've become uh, a writer. Uh, a little bit later... Um, uh, we lived in uh, the city of Windsor across the river from Detroit, Michigan, and um, there was a lot of uh, American influence on the television and certainly in uh, bookstores. Um, that's when I latched on to the Hardy Boys at the age of 10, and um, I remember distinctly I would get my allowance once a month, and it wasn't very much back then, it was probably less than $2, and I would go right off to the local bookshop and buy the latest installation of the Hardy Boys. They, they weren't new at that time, of course, but but I would buy the next uh, the next in the series. I think they were uh, maybe 54 or 56 by that at that point, and I did eventually get, I think, all of them uh, up to the age uh, I was when when they were published. And I would bring them home, and I would lie on my bunk bed turning the pages very slowly and I would have on one side in one hand I would have the book and on the other hand I would have a bag of Cheeto Lake corn chips and my my challenge was to make the corn chips last to the end of the book and I would not get up from that bunk bed until I had finished the adventures of Frank and Joe Hardy so that's uh, that was phase two I guess of my of my writing education <laughs> I, I would think being in Windsor, hearing the gunfire from Detroit—that's all you'd need. <laughs> it was—it was inspirational. Uh, in fact, I, in fact, um, this was a little bit a little bit younger. I would uh, plant my plant my um, elbows on my bedroom uh, windowsill, and I would look out uh, across the river. And I was facing Detroit, and I could hear the gunshots, and I could actually see the the smoke rising. And I just thought this was some special kind of television that someone had devised because I didn't really didn't wow. know any better. Yeah. Well, it is quite amazing the difference of in violence, like gun violence, uh, between the U.S. and Canada. It's so extreme. Um, I, it's it's almost unbelievable. I think with a lot of Americans, when you talk to them, especially further south you go, as compared to um, closer to the border. But when you go further south, they're sort of surprised. Uh, they almost don't believe it. Sorry, who who doesn't believe it? The Americans? Or yeah, the Canadians? no, the Americans almost don't believe that uh, there's not the same sort of gun violence going on in Canada. Well, they should come up for a bit <laughs> <laughs> and relax a bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, it is uh, not to make light of it. it. It is a problem. You and you may have heard. Um, you may have heard about our big shooting in Nova Scotia a couple of weeks ago, and um, they've tracked a number of the guns back to the back to the U.S. illegally because those guns are not available in Canada. But they can they can be brought across the border. They can be sneaked across the border, 
and uh, that does happen unfortunately but yeah but yeah i never um growing up here i never really understood the tendency to need to argue with guns i just thought you, you you there are better ways of doing it so um so when i hear about the uh, the violence south of the border i'm i'm quite shocked <laughs> to hear it too yeah yeah I grew up in uh, in southwestern Virginia and Appalachia, and I still don't understand the need for it. So I'm not. <laughs> it's like I don't I don't know. It's definitely a cultural mindset, but it's not everywhere. Um, it's it's interesting. It, it is interesting, and I also remember as a kid watching. Uh, cowboy movies, basically, and thinking, why, why do they need all these guns? And so, you know, it's to, it, it's a mindset. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. It's part of the culture. The. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, when when was the first time you had a book published? Like, when when did that start? Uh, that was 1997. My first book came out from. Um, from England, uh, I had try, I, I had written a book called A Cage of Bones, which is not a mystery, even though it sounds like one. Um, it, I had tried to shop it around in Canada quite a few times to a number of publishers and kept getting turned down. And uh, finally, someone said to me, well, did you try anywhere outside the country? And I said, well, no, I'm a Canadian. Shouldn't I be published here first? And that was when the light went on. I thought, okay, I'll send... I'll send a you know a trial letter to an American publisher, and I'll send a trial letter to a British publisher. So I sent I sent both letters, and uh, within a month I got requests from both of them to submit the manuscript, and both of them eventually said yes, we would like to accept your manuscript. So I I actually had to choose, but uh, the the publisher in England was uh, better known and had better distribution around the world. So so I took I, I went with that press, um, and also part of the uh, part of the novel takes place in Britain. So it made sense that somebody outside Canada would actually <laughs> would actually want it. But it, it never occurred to me at the time because you know in the states there are books you know published about other countries in Canada. There were books published about other countries, but I never made the connection that you might want to go to the source when you're a first time author because that is the breakthrough. That's the hardest one. Uh, for, that, that I experienced, and certainly many other writers have said that was the hardest book to get out. Once you do, the gate is open, but you still have to know that it's only open a little bit. And uh, unless you're making a lot of money for somebody, uh, you still have to keep knocking and pushing and, and um, pushing your credentials, basically, to say, hey, I've got a second book and a third one, and they're both you know, as good as or better than the first. Yeah, it's a tough one. Now, um, what do you primarily write? It's, is it always um, kind of a crime fiction or a mystery? No, and again, it's, it was trial and error. My first book was literary fiction. Uh, when people said, what is it? I would say it's a cross between Sylvia Plath and Marcel Proust, and they would kind of you know, shrug <laughs> their shoulders and cross their eyes and go, huh? <laughs> but fortunately for me, it was it was eventually published. It did very very well around around the world. Uh, my second book to be written uh, was uh, not to be published, but to be written was another piece of literary fiction. It was about the Bosnian War in the 1990s, <laughs> and particularly in Sarajevo. Very heavy duty stuff. Um, and it was uh, about a, a war journalist who goes from Canada to Sarajevo, basically because she can't stand the wars in her family, so she finds it easier to, you know, accept life during wartime in, in another country. Uh, that again was another fairly hefty work, and people were just not ready for it at the time. So my third book was actually my first mystery. It's called The P-Town Murders. And it came about in a moment of despair when I couldn't sell the second book. Uh, I just took uh, I, I took a trip with my partner at the time, and we went to Provincetown. And a lot of very strange things happened uh, while we were there, and I met a lot of unusual people. Well, if you know Provincetown, I mean, you know, it, <laughs> it is a place of eccentrics. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's not really that unusual. Uh, but I, I remember thinking to myself, 
wow, I feel like I'm living in a, in a murder mystery. And uh, I thought, all, all that's lacking is the body. Fortunately, there was no, there was no body. I had to invent one. Um, but what really, <laughs> what really convinced me to, uh, to sit down and write this when I got home, uh, there were two things, actually. Um, one was an incident when I was in the jacuzzi um, in, in the condo where I was staying, and I looked out across the way, and there were a pair of binoculars trained on me sitting in the jacuzzi. I thought, okay, I feel, now I feel I'm being spied on. Um, so, so it, it, this story clicked. It, this story clicked in my head. I say, I flashed the, I flashed the guy who was watching me with the binoculars, and I got a flash of my own back. And the flash was the murder mystery that that came through. So I went home to write it. But what, what really triggered it when I got home? Um, I had been staying as the guest of of a, a, a fairly wealthy man who owned owned this building in Provincetown. Uh, all I knew was I'd never met him. I, I was hooked up with the place through a friend of a friend. And all I knew was um, his last name was Bradford. And when I got home, I, I, I realized there are two streets in Provincetown, two main streets. One is Bradford Street. The other is Commercial Street. And I phoned my friend and I said to her, I said, Janice, does, um, does your boss, who, who was the owner of the house, does your boss have anything to do with Bradford Street in Provincetown? She said, yes, he was one of the people who came over on the Mayflower. And I thought, oh, I feel like I've just kind of mainlined something here. And sure <laughs> enough, that book sold. Uh, I sat down and wrote it in two months, and that book sold in two weeks. Whereas wow. the other books had taken me years to sell, and I thought, okay, I, th I think I'm on to something here. It's it's it is a comic mystery. I should I should make that that clear. Uh, I still I still wasn't taking mysteries seriously at that point. But from that one, I went to another and another and another, and there were very soon there were actually four of the Bradford. I, I took his name, the Bradford Fairfax mysteries, uh, all all comedic, all of which. Um, Take place on uh, in, in LGBTQ resorts: the Provincetown, the Piton Murders, Death in Key West, Vanished in Vallarta, and then Bonton Roulet is the, was the latest one in New Orleans. Um, so that was the impetus. And then I had an editor who turned to me one day and said, "When are you ever going to take mysteries seriously?" And I just thought, "Oh." That's a challenge. Maybe, maybe I should do that. And from that actually came the series, the Dan Sharp PI series, that uh, of which uh, Lions had revisited is is the uh, the sixth and, and probably last. Uh, sorry, the seventh and, and last um, uh, title. Hmm. So, where where did you get your inspiration for um, for that series, the Dan Sharp ser mysteries? Um, I, I would say, Alan, it's, um, it's where I get all my inspirations from traveling. I'm uh, almost an obsessive traveler. I like to meet people. I am very fond of driving, but I also love train, traveling by train. And when I'm in a train, I can just kind of gaze out the window and see the landscape passing by, and it's like I go into uh, like a trance, and I start uh, I start seeing scenes and characters and hearing dialogue, and and it, it's it springs to life for me. So 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 really through travel, I would say more than more than any other source. Hmm. I guess the current conditions have uh, dampened that somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've been spending a lot of time on Google Maps, I have to tell you. It's kind of interesting, but, so, the, but the characters you use in the book, how do you develop them? How does, um, if you don't take them from people you know, um, where, where does that come from? So especially in a series of books, if you have a returning character... Um, how do you put together how they're going to develop? Uh, I, I have to say it's like an impulse. It's an intuition, and I'm sure I'm sure uh, both of you can can attest to this. You feel something mm -hmm. growing inside you, and you think, okay, that's 
a reflection of me, but it's not really me, uh, especially when you get to the, you know, the dirty, nitty-gritty, particularly you, Alan, with the, with the serial killer. The, you don't ever want to be those people, but on some level, you want to say that you can hear them, you can feel something coming from them. And, and, and really that's it. So, so it's very much once I get the feeling, how does this character think and breathe and, you know, what does he or she like to eat or how do they dress or what does their hair look like? Uh, they, they start to come alive. And, um, in, in the case with, uh, Dan Sharp, the Dan Sharp character, um, the first book is called Lake on the Mountain, the first of the seven. Lake on the Mountain is a very interesting place on, on Lake Ontario. It's, uh, it's about, uh, a hundred, a hundred meters, I think, above sea level or water level. Uh, yet there's a lake up there with no, no obvious incoming sources and nobody can figure out, well, they, eventually they have formed hypotheses, but they couldn't figure out at the time where did the water come from. And a hundred years ago, it was, it was actually a bit of a waterfall. It was just blasting out while, meanwhile, there's all this water, you know, like a hundred, hundred feet down below. And so why would that water rise up there? Well, it doesn't. It came from someplace else. Uh, but when you go there, there's you drive up there and you get out and it, it's flat and there's this lake. It's not very big and there are no uh, motor boats allowed on it. You can have paddle boats and, and canoes and things like that, but that's all you're allowed. You get this really eerie feeling that something is not right. It's almost like something is disobeying the laws of physics, the laws of nature. And eventually you figure out it's because the water is there and it shouldn't be there. And you start, you turn in one direction, you see way, way down on the other side, you see the Bay of Quinty, and then you turn back to the lake, you think, how does this stay up here? So the first time I visited there, it, it left me with this eerie feeling, and I didn't know what to do with it, but my writer self said, this is something to you know put in a notebook, save for a rainy day. Uh, it wasn't until about a year later that I actually came across the story that I would write that took place up there and the character Dan Sharp uh, who uh, Dan is not me um, and and that's and sorry I'm taking a long way to get around to this but that's the point I'm getting at Dan is not me and occasionally we will have discussions that actually turn into arguments in my head about why he would do such and such or why he would say such and such uh, because it would be very foreign to my way of thinking, but it's natural for him. So I had to find a space inside me to accommodate this very intriguing character. It's, it's almost as if you have a friend at a distance and you know what they would say in such and such a circumstance, but they're not there at that particular moment, and you can carry on an internal dialogue with them all the same. Uh, so re real people, you can do that with real people, but in my case, I can do it with characters as well. And I think that's uh, that's a quality that, it's almost a schizophrenic quality that m probably all writers will develop at some yeah. point in their careers. Hmm. Now, did you feel, did you feel an attachment to your characters then? Yes, very much. Um, uh, they were almost like friends that, uh, as I said, friends at a distance, Dan, uh, particularly his son, uh, Kedrick, who, who uh, contradicts him a lot, um, and the best friend, Donnie. Uh, so these, these were very real people for me for the entire time I was writing the series. And uh, the last book, uh, the, the last few books came out uh, they came out out of sequence, so you actually have to, if you're going to read the series in order, you have to you have to rejig them in the order. So Lion's Head Revisited was the seventh and last book that I wrote, but it's actually sixth in the series. Um, so uh, you have to find a place to accommodate these people within you. And as I was writing the last book, which which should have been the, the second last book, and it, only it refused to come out when I wanted it to, uh, I felt the characters were not going to be there afterwards. And in fact, uh, Dan doesn't talk to me anymore. It's a, it's a bit of a lonely <laughs> feeling. It's like I've lost a friend. So he's not there. Um, so, uh, you know, the characters do take on flesh and blood 
proportions, but only in my mind. So obviously they're not physical people. Uh, and to a degree, they have, they do reflect people I know. Um, Dan, in fact, has my, um, I lost a younger brother a couple of years ago. And Dan was very much his sense of humor. He was very biting, very sarcastic. Um, and, uh, so, so there is, there is a sense that there is, there are real people that have the qualities that these characters embody, but, but, you know, ultimately there are still characters in the book. Yeah, you, you mentioned on the, on your, on your website that the line said revisited was you're kind of moving to, to include more female characters. I was really curious about that. Um, that, that's not the first time. The, the book on Sarajevo was okay. mostly female characters. It was about three right. sisters and the mother. Um, in this case, I just got tired of the men. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> I think Dan did too. He just got tired of all these men <laughs> complaining about men things. And so he was thrilled when this modern family of two women and a, and a, and a man, so there's the mother of the child who is, is missing. She's, her child is kidnapped, but there's also her partner, uh, who's a, a woman, and then the, um, the biological father. So they, they form this, this, uh, threesome, not, not sexually, uh, the, but, but as a, as a modern day family, uh, mm-hmm. they all live together and they, they raise this child together who goes missing. And, uh, so Dan is really intrigued when there's kind of a new, uh, you know, a new turnaround on the, on the classic mystery case. And he's thinking, okay, now I've got something I can actually be interested in because I'm really, really, you know, fed up with all the men and their, and their nonsense. So, so that, that's, that's where that came from. Um, also the, uh, the, the Me Too movement. I just thought, okay, here are voices that are finally being heard. So let's see how, how these will fit into Dan Sharp's world. And he was more than happy to accommodate them. Hmm. You know, I was talking with um, John a little bit before the uh, interview. And, uh, I, you know, in my, in my world, working in the true crime world, it's, um, it, uh, being gay is not actually a, a, a positive thing. It's still quite, um, you know, how do you say, um, conservative. Um, so Taboo? Yeah, you deal with cops, and I deal with a lot of people in that business, and, and they're very, um, they'll tell me jokes <laughs> about gay people, right? So it's kind of, it's not really, they, they don't really associate, it's just not real, a, a friendly atmosphere, I don't think, up to now still. Um, how do you find the publishing world as far as with, with gay stories and, and gay um, characters like uh, Dan that are, um, you know, in the mysteries and, and detectives and people like that. Um, did you find it quite open to it or is it a struggle with, with publishers too? Well, l- let me step back here a minute. Um, the brother, the, my brother who's, who's gone now, Mark, um, he was a cop and he was married to a cop. A, a woman, a female cop, and my other brother, my other younger brother, it, it was a Marines fisheries officer, and my father was a hunter. So you know, we would all get together at Christmas, and they would talk about their guns, and I'd sit there and think about John Dunn and you know Marcel Proust, and I think how did I get into this family? But obviously, something wore off on me that I realized I had to I had to make this story in a way that was accessible accessible to many many people. As as far as the publishing aspect goes, uh, I have been fortunate in having met um, publishers who turned out to be gay. I didn't necessarily know that they were when I met them, but uh, there was a sympathy there. And when I would describe the material, they would be show, show their interest in what I was doing. Uh, of course, uh, publishers still still want to make that bottom line of, of sales and and the dollar figures coming in. So they're not going to publish a book because they like you. They're going to publish a book because they think that they can sell the book and make and make some money doing so. Um, as far is it easier these days? I don't think it's a lot easier. Um, there are more gay gay-themed publishers, but in terms of getting into the larger publishers, I don't think it's easier. I do see some gay writers, gay and lesbian writers getting in, uh, but these seem to be still the exception to the rule. And uh, <clears throat> when, when we um, 
look at books like uh, Call Me By Your Name by Andre Ackerman. Uh, these are books that have a have a critical success as well as a commercial success, but then we find out that the author is actually not gay. So I I don't know how that feeds into the sensibility of the book. I, I did read the book and watch the movie. Um, I don't like to sit and think about the themes of the book as, as uh, you know, straight as opposed to gay when I'm writing it. I like to look at it later after the book's finished and, and see what's actually there. And it is, in many cases, a, a question of reaching across to the audience that is outside the realm of the realm of comfort of sometimes reading these books. Uh, I do get uh, letters, fan letters, and sometimes the opposite um, from people who have read them and, and want to reach out and tell me what they think of the books. Um, and these, the, the letters do go across, uh, you know, across the spectrum of uh, sexuality. Um, but um, in terms of ease of access to publishers, I would say no. I don't think it's really that easy. Uh, compared compared to any time in the, in the past, I don't think it's easier than what it has been. Yeah, one of the questions I I mean you you talked about it a little bit um, was sort of this idea of what your who your audience is and how that kind of plays into whether publishers um, see your book as marketable or you know I know they're worried whenever they feel like it's a niche audience because there's sort of a mind frame I think often that only gay people read about gay people or that could be any other sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, other individual. And I don't know, do you feel like that's playing any role in it? Um, and is there, what are your feelings about that? What's your sense of it? <clears throat> uh, uh, the, the one thing I can tell you is that the reviews I get are dominated by gay media sources, gay papers. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and that skews who the book is, um, seen by, uh, but but there is there is crossover. I definitely know that. Uh, the one thing that gives me a bit of hope these days is I don't know if uh, anybody's been um, watching the Netflix limited series, and um, I am seeing that there is an attempt there. At least in my mind, it seems to be an attempt to normalize diversity rather than mm -hmm. to uh, rather than to make it. Uh, an oddity or to leave it as an oddity as yeah. it has been in the past in, in mainstream media. So I think the crossover is happening in ways we may not be entirely aware of at the time, uh, but I still think it's harder for gay writers writing about gay themes to get their books published in, in mainstream presses. I think, I think yeah. that's a given. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, when you do your books... Um, is there a, um, a an actual? Is there something that you want people to get out of your books after they read it? Do you have some sort of a um, a framework that you work with um, to to create these uh, uh, these these mystery stories? Um, I I would think if I have a message, and I don't really want to be you know listed as a as a message writer but if i have a message it's basically how do you treat other human beings how do you relate to other human beings because that's the story it's very much about the relationships in the book dan his son uh the woman who gave birth to the son uh, his best friend uh, the people he works with, the clients he works with. It's really about what kind of relationship you form with people and, and how you choose to proceed to be, uh, to be the best person you can. Or conversely, how you, you know, if you're a, a not a good guy in the series, how you decide to be not a good person and, and what that means overall. So, so it's re that background, the human being, the human aspect of the, is, is the background of it, and I hope people walk away with that. Uh, I also hope they walk away thinking, "Wow, that was really clever. He fooled me." Um, you know, I mean, that is kind of the point of a mystery: is you don't want people to guess, but you want to place it under their nose at the same time, and, and then at the last minute say, "Hmm, you missed that, didn't you?" And uh, try not to feel too smug about it. <laughs> 
So where do you see yourself going now? Like what, what, what do you want to venture out in different areas of writing? Um, do you want to stick to mystery? Uh, you've done some standalone books as well. Um, where do you see your, your future? Um, I, ha I have always written across the spectrum of writing. I mean, I've, I've written plays, I've written screenplays. Um, drama, I think, is my forte at the, the heart of whatever I write, which is why I try to put so much of the human element into the mystery. Um, I am making a conscious attempt at this point to, to wipe the slate clean and start start with something quite fresh. I, I don't think there will be another Dan Sharp book. Um, there certainly won't be another book about Sarajevo uh, in, the, in the near future. Um, what I'm working on now is uh, potentially a series that is a bit more in the thriller genre, if we can call it, if we can call it that, uh, and it relates to CSIS, which is the Canadian Security Intelligence uh, Service in Canada, which would be a little bit like CIA, but not quite so not quite so extreme. Um, perhaps a little bit more like MI6 in, in Britain, but again, it's going to relate to the relationships and the personalities within the story. That's really what is at the heart of any book that I write is who are these people, what are they about, why do they do the things they do, and where do they end up because of it. And, and that's really what I try to examine in, in all, all of my writing. What are, what are your uh, biggest influences on these stories? Um, the current one that I'm writing, the CSIS series, uh, the, probably the biggest influence would be John le Carre. Uh, he's a writer that um, I have a great respect for. And uh, when I'm feeling kind of, you know, a little bit disillusioned with the world, I go into his world of disillusionment and I see what's there and I see how I can, can how I can rise above it personally, but also uh, use uh, his vision, his wisdom, and uh, try to make a, Cana a Canadian version of that, but one which will read, you know, internationally, because John le Carre is not just a British writer. He's not just writing about spies. He's, again, he's writing about human beings and how, uh, how they find their place in the world. And I think that's what writers do. Mm -hmm. So it, when you write about this, like you're writing about CSIS and stuff, and, and the world right now is, um, especially in the States, is really, um, I don't know if you want to say paranoid, or um, there's a lot of conspiracy, and it, it, it kind of bubbles over in Canada. Do you find that... Um, in writing this book, you include that kind of, uh, you know, that conspiracy and paranoid and deep state sort of view? Um, to, to a degree. I mean, I'm not writing about conspiracy theory, and I like all of my books to reflect reality, but perhaps a heightened reality. Um, in researching the current series, I was very interested to find how uh, before CSIS began, which I believe was in 1984, um, uh, formally, uh, the CIA did a lot of things in Canada with our permission. They were secret things, they were hidden things, uh, but they did experiments, um, they were uh, d doing work uh, to, to counteract things during the Cold War. Uh, what people sometimes forget, because we, we tend to look at the world from east to west, but if you look at it from north to south and back again, Canada is situated directly between the U.S. and Russia. So, you know, there's some kind of subliminal worry there, implicit in the fact that if there is ever a war between well, then it was the USSR, but between Russia and the U.S., uh, there could be a lot of literal fallout in, in, in this country. So, so there is that sense of, you know, we are caught between extreme warring factions, and we always have to be careful. But we tend not to be um, a paranoid society in Canada. We tend to be a little bit naive, in my point of view. 
And uh, that is one of the one of the secondary themes in the book is how naive Canada is and how long it can afford to go on being naive in the face of uh, what's happening in the world today. Yeah, I always find that when I'm on stateside, I think that it's over policed and over dramatized. And when I'm in Canada, I feel it's under policed and um, like you say, naive. It's kind of a. Uh, the, the, the two countries have really gone different directions since mm-hmm. the 50s and 60s. I, it's kind of uh, it's kind of unusual feeling going back and forth. Um, I, so, out, out of your books, um, what was your favorite one to write? Uh, you know, I'll give the standard writer answer. Each one was the favorite one at the time <laughs> I was writing it, uh, and that's true. Um, if I look back, and, and uh, Alan, I think you've had 15, 16 books. How many have you had? Yeah, I think there's uh, 16 now published. Okay, so I'm at 15. 15 published, not 15 written. I've got a couple uh, sitting in a drawer, literary novels that, that I can't sell, uh, or I, ha- I can't sell them yet. I, I find uh, usually <laughs> there's a three- or four-year gap before somebody says, oh, that's very today, and I think, no, that was very five years ago when I was writing it, but now, now you're getting it. Um, but... Uh, the one that I, if I reread, and I very seldom reread my books, uh, <clears throat> the Dan Sharp series was uh, up for um, a revision, of, a proofreading revision, because they're going into mass market paperback. So I had to go through them and read and find out all the spelling mistakes and the grammatical errors and things. But I wasn't allowed to change the actual text unless it was an, it was an error. But uh, my my project for about six months was to go back and read all the books. Um, and I hadn't read any of them since they, since they were published because I, I just don't. I, I, don't uh, I don't enjoy going back to them. I see all the mistakes that I think I've made that most people don't see. Uh, but in this case, um, the book of all, all the Dan Sharp books that I enjoyed most is the most recent one, Lions Head Revisited. It seems to me it's the one where I pulled everything together in the way that I wanted to and did not disappoint myself at all. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm a very harsh parent. I'm, I'm very strict. Uh, so it's just easier to turn turn a blind eye to what you know my my wanton children are doing out in the world and, and rather than go after them and say you forgot the semicolon and you didn't do this and you forgot to ask that question and it it, it, it really gets under my skin so I, I literally don't read them un, until I until I have to read them so in this yeah. case that, that was the impetus for it yeah I, I'm like that too I never go back but you know with each book that I have done um, there, there's always something that changes um, after I've written the book. So when I go on to the next book, it will be different because of that book. Do you know? Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure if that affects you the same way in in these series. Um, it's sort of a cumulative effect of, of what you're dealing with. Is that what you mean? Yeah, because once I go through something, like, you know, when, when I was doing the Russell Williams case, you're doing it and you're meeting a lot of people. And, and once you get finished it, you, you just learn a whole new aspect of how people uh, treat each other, how they, how they live their lives. And a lot of it, sometimes it surprises you, right? So I'm kind of old. And, uh, but you take it in because it's true. And then you come on to do your next project and I'm now different after being through that project. I'm not at all surprised to hear you say that, especially given the nature of the material you're dealing with, because you cannot take it lightly. Uh, with fiction, um, it's it's a little bit different, but you do get to know the characters as people, as, as I mentioned earlier. And one of the things that surprised me in this last book, which is why I think it wouldn't come out uh, chronologically, as, as I mentioned, it should have been the sixth book, and it came out as the final book. Um, I had to dig deeper into Dan's character to actually help him solve the mystery in this book, because it, it's called Lion's Head Revisited. Lion's Head is where the kidnapping in the book takes place, 
but it's also where Dan had some of his pro- most profound uh, memories of his father and his mother, both of whom are long since dead when the sto- when the current story starts. But he had to dig deep, and in doing so, uh, I was able to help him see the mystery and the the kidnapping in a different light, and and. Uh, Find a way for him to solve the kidnapping that was that was relevant to him, and I, it, it brought out great depths in, in his character. And uh, so, so in, in that sense, uh, all the seven books were cumulative as I got to know Dan and and basically put his life on on paper more than any other character I've ever done. See, I think that's really interesting because you describe Dan as a like a living person. Um, the, the, like it's, it, you have to help him and you dig deeper and stuff the, see that's what I find fascinating because on my side it's that they are living people and I really don't try to help them <laughs> so <laughs> you know they've already done what they do and they are done and, they, and you know the, it's kind of it's, it's kind of going with the effects so I, I I find that interesting so how 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 is that process like that's what I'm trying to um, understand is the process of you taking this character that is not real, but you have to make them real in order to, you know, do this series of books and deal with all these different events or happenings. And so, so can you explain that process a little bit? Or well, hard? to do that, <clears throat> I'm going to take you back to my 10-year-old self reading Frank and Joe Hardy in my bunk bed with the Frito-Lay's corn chips. Um, I didn't realize that they were not real people. Okay, 10 years. I mean, maybe I should have thought into it a little bit more, but in my head, they were real people. And I remember, because keep in mind, we lived, we lived, across, uh, we lived across from Detroit, Michigan, and I believe the Hardys lived somewhere in Bay City, Michigan. So I came down to breakfast one day, and I, after I'd been reading the book, and I asked my mother where the Hardy boys lived. And she looked at me and she said, they're not real. You realize that, don't you? And I was heartbroken. I stuttered, and I said, but... Uh, but they could be, couldn't they? Because I was unwilling to give up that reality that <laughs> actually existed uh, and had solved, you know, all 54 murders by the age of 17 or crimes by the age of 17, whatever it was, with the help of, you know, Fenton, their father. Um, so for me, characters, if, if I'm deeply invested in them, on some level, they have to be real. And for Dan, he and I struggle because we, we are definitely not the same person. And he would say things and do things. I think, mm, I, I don't agree with that. But psychologically, it wouldn't make any sense for me to force my actions and my thoughts on him. Uh, because that, then I would walk away thinking, I've just uh, falsified a character. or I've falsified a person as like lying about somebody. Uh, and I would not be able to believe in him. So I had to give him full reign to do and think what what he would do as a person. So he, so he had become so fully dimensional in my head that eventually I would know, you know, what he would have for lunch, what he would wear, what he would not wear, what he might, uh, you know, what toothpaste he would buy or, or you know, whether he would have his hair cut short or long. Um, and these would ultimately have very, very little to do with my personal predilections. Um, so he, he just took on that dimension of a reality that I think seven books allows you to do that. Uh, whereas one book you might not, you might not be able to explore all, all of his facets. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. Plus I, I have to, uh, personally, I have to go around and see as many people as I can and talk to them, uh, people that knew, whoever you're doing the book about. So in, in the true crime, you, you, you talk to parents and families, friends and all that, and that sort of helps give a 360, uh, you know, of that person. Um, it's not just two-dimensional. So that's what I was, because you don't have that in, the, in your character. No, but I have it in the secondary characters who all have opinions about him. 
So, so I do get feedback from, from other people, as it were, other characters, obviously. Uh, and, and that helps me fully flesh things out to know, to know the person I'm dealing with. And, and of course, nobody is just one thing. I mean, we all change, you know, sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis. Um, so you, you have to be aware of that too. So I was, aware of inconsistencies in his character that would not be outside the scope of his personality ultimately. But when I would argue with him, what I was getting at was, why am I not, I, the author, why am I not comfortable with the choices uh, that are being made for this character? Because something is standing out as, no, he would, somebody like this, the person I'm describing, would not do these things. And it, it was usually the would nots as opposed to the woulds. Sometimes um, uh, that that little discussion, inner discussion, would lead me to something like, oh, but he might do this instead. And and occasionally that uh, gave me an avenue, a plot avenue, that uh, was was quite uh, rewarding to, to follow along with. Do you ever do you ever feel that um, uh, that you have like uncovered something that you are unaware of about the character as you're writing or through editing? In other words, um, it doesn't feel predetermined. It feels like you kind of discovered it, uh, you know, embedded in, in your writing. It was like through writing, it was discovery, I guess. Has that happened to you? I, uh, John, John, I have to say that that's. A constant, uh, a constant with me. Um, I just, I try very hard not to edit my thoughts while I'm writing because I find that's a deterrent to actually getting things mm-hmm. on page. So sometimes I look back and I think, wow, that's uh, a lot of garbage on that page, but I'll look for the <laughs> one sentence or the one thought or even the one word that goes, that's what I wanted. That's why I had to write that entire page, that entire passage. That's where I was going. And then I just get rid of it and I hone in on on that particular aspect. And for me, writing is always following someone else's carrot. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, I'm just I'm just very grateful there are a lot of carrots out there being being waved in front of me to, <laughs> to follow. Because otherwise I, I don't know if I would do it. No, it's interesting. I just, I, I find that fascinating. So, now, um, do you do you like to interact with your your readers as well? Do you have like a, a big social media profile and all that that you um, take um, as you know quotes or questions from people? I, I'm I'm definitely very happy to do it. I don't know if my media profile is that big. I'm I'm on Facebook. I do a bit of Twitter. Um, so I don't spend a lot of time online, but as soon as I get a question, as soon as I get some interest, I am very happy to respond to it. One of the, one of the ways we were promoting the current book, Lions Head Revisited, was I put pictorials, uh, I, I'm, uh, as I mentioned, I'm a traveler and I'm also a photographer, so I take pictures of wherever I go and some of those end up as being scenes uh, from the books. And so I've always got these photographic guides. So what I did was I went through them, culled them down to just a handful of pictures and wrote essays on each of the seven books, uh, what had inspired them, some of the physical places uh, that I had been. Um, And uh, after I had done that, I, I realized I had gotten so many questions on Facebook, I went ahead and put, took out the best of the questions and actually sat down and, and answered directly all of those questions. There, there were about, I think there were about 10, and, uh, and, and made an entire other essay on uh, just the questions uh, that had come out of uh, readers' readers' imaginations. And uh, I, that inspired me, too. So, uh, so yes, it's something I do like to do, uh, but I'm not, uh, as I said, I'm not really someone who sits online all day and, and uh, waits for some, <laughs> I don't wait for people to ask me questions. <laughs> that was better that way. I, I'd much rather wait for them to offer me to take me out for a drink. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's better that way. No, do you, uh, well, that's funny because uh, when you travel, uh, for me, um, I, I write when I travel. I, I can't write a lot of. Um, narrative at home 
Um, do you find that as well, or do you? Uh, it doesn't matter to you. One of one of the best scenes I wrote again in the in the current book. I was uh, I was on an airplane. I was uh, I think I was flying to New Orleans, and um, I realized that I had a book coming a, a scene coming up in in the book, the current book, the one that's just out, that takes place uh, while somebody's in an airplane looking down at the at the ground and uh, imagining what's going on there. I thought, hey, I'm in an airplane. Why don't I look out the window and imagine what's going on there? And it was actually one of the most vivid scenes I've ever written. It, in the book, it takes place in a heli- helicopter. Uh, Dan has. Um, Dan has found a clue to the kidnapping in at Lion's Head, which is a geographical location four hours north of Toronto. He comes back with the clue. The police say, hey, we need to get you back there, but we can't spend all the time driving. We're going to take you in the helicopter. So he's up in the helicopter. He's uh, reimagining the scenes from his childhood as they're passing below him, and he's seeing what's going on there. So, yes, I love to write while I'm traveling. Tra- trains are my favorite, uh, but I even write in subways sometimes when uh, you know I'm trying to avoid being jostled and, and pushed and shoved and you know trying to get away from those knapsacks that everybody's wearing these days, or not these days. Currently, nobody's on the subway. I don't think. Frank, <laughs> <laughs> <Pretty laughs> uh, no, yeah, I, I'm that way too. I, I I love traveling and writing, so it works. Wow. So uh, let's give out your website. So if people want to come and check out your books and find out more about you, um, where's, where is it that they go? So worldwideweb.jeffreyround, that's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-O-U-N-D, round like a circle, but spell my first name correctly. Everybody wants to tur- turn it into three syllables. It's not Jeffrey, it's jeffreyround.com. And uh, please, you can uh, send me a question. There's a there's a a link at the bottom that will send you to uh, send you to another link that will allow you to ask questions. <laughs> Goes through the CIA first. <laughs> <laughs> I think it does. Yeah, no doubt. Go Daddy is another word for CIA. <laughs> that's, that's it. Oh, I hope I won't get in trouble for that. <laughs> no, you will. Well, great. This has been a. a, a incredible interview we've enjoyed having you on and um hopefully we get you back again sometime and uh we will have your website linked up to ours as well as your uh newest book um great well thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about writing and and guys thanks it's been great to meet you virtually uh i hope uh, alan and john we get to do it in person one day and you know we'll exchange more stories it's been great thank you sounds great You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. <laughs>